we, we emphasize so much, well, we got to raise grants so we can do the science, but you can't raise money if you don't have quality people. On today's Triple H, Habits and Hacks from Hopkins, we have Dr. Doug Robinson, my friend from a leadership course we took together years and years ago. Dr. Robinson is a professor of cell biology. So tell people who you are and what you do here at Hopkins. Yeah, so I'm a faculty member over in the Department of Cell Biology. I have a research lab. We study basic cellular processes such as cell shape change. So cytokinesis or cell division was our very, very first uh, model process that we studied and one that we kind of love the most. But then it turns out that the concepts we can uncover there are really relevant for a wide range of other types of cell shape change processes, as well as ones that go awry in disease, such as cancer and uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So we actually have research programs now that cover those three major areas, so fundamental cell shape control, as well as cancer-related studies, and then COPD research. Um, And so that's kind of what we do on the laboratory side. And then the other aspect of it is, of course, we have an outreach program, which you may have heard about um, over the years, where we um, try to provide opportunities for superb scholars from low-income backgrounds to make sure they have all the things that they need to be able to succeed um, in the world of STEM. So I opened my lab in 2001 when I did that. So I I, I need to give you a slight amount of context. So I did my grad work at Yale with Lynn Cooley, who incidentally is currently the um, dean of the grad school of arts and sciences at Yale. Um, I then did my postdoctoral training at Stanford with Jim Spudich uh, in the department of biochemistry. And the reason why I want to give you that context is both Lynn and Jim are phenomenal mentors. They provided an environment where you, as a trainee, were, were given great freedom to explore your interests, your curiosities, to develop a vision, to think about what it is you would want to become. They were the ultimate supporters. They, they were both major, major influences on, on me. Um, and then I had the opportunity to, in 2001, when I opened my lab, to be a member, or be an attendee, rather, of the very, very first Burroughs Welcome Howard Hughes Medical Institute training uh, program for how to to run and organize a laboratory. And so I got to attend that. Um, And what's interesting then is what I I set out to establish for myself when I I opened my own lab was really a vision of what Lynn and Jim taught and modeled, um, as well as what I thought myself was important. So it's really a fusion of the three. And then what I got from that training session was really an affirmation that what was intuitive to me I actually took great pride and pleasure and satisfaction and comfort in hearing what they were teaching at that at that um, course and realizing that it was re- reaffirming what I was what I found to be intuitive based on my prior experiences. From there, you know, it became kind of somewhat more straightforward to map out what I thought a laboratory should look like and what would be important. And one of the things that I did immediately, somewhat at the recommendation that I took away from that course, the HHM, HHMI Bros Welcome course was to write down a lab vision statement that you have available or that you make available to all your trainees. And in that, you know, you detail out, you know, what is your what are your long-term goals for your for your lab? Number one. Number two, what are your products for your lab? And we all might think, well it's publications, it's discovery, and so on. And that absolutely is categorically true. But in addition, your trainees are also a product of your lab. And so it becomes just as important to emphasize their development and to prioritize their development so that you ensure that they have all of the green space, the reagents, the materials, the support, the guidance and advice and base to be able to be, to have a voice and to be able to express and and explore their own ideas. 
so that they can develop into the scientists that they're seeking to become. And so I think it was really those, those, those are kind of the um, overarching goals and um, values that, that I put into place very early on based on, on all those different parameters. You know, we, we emphasize so much, well, we got to raise grants so we can do the science, but you can't raise money if you don't have quality people. And so, in fact, actually what I very quickly realized is there's really sort of three components to any, any academic enterprise, and that is our product, which is, would be our science, but also our personnel, which turns out to also be a product, and then the money that flows into that that's necessary to support it all. And so those, those are kind of the three major components. Interestingly, I have a lot of friends who are in business, including my father who, and my mother, who each had their own businesses, and a number of other people contacts over the years from a variety of different domains. And I've had this conversation many times over, and often we'll be having this discussion, you know, what, what, is, what is your operation like? And so I explain it. It has those three components, and they look at me, and they shake their head and go, that's exactly the way our business runs. <laughs> Well, lo and behold, Eureka! Uh, science is a business. Who'd have thunk it? We, we, we eggheads, we academic, you know, eggheads who live our lives in between our ears have to realize that we have a lot to learn from other industries that we can take some of the same practices. And, and lo and behold, other industries can rest assured that these ivory towers are not so ivory, that we're doing the same kinds of stuff. I love that. So how do yeah. you go about, you know, once you put this vision together and you learn through, through the Burroughs Welcome Program how that kind of affirmed your instinctive nature of what needed to happen. Putting the vision together, um, you've communicated that. That's so important. What are the long-term goals and the products? Then how do you go about putting together an SOP? And how do you figure out what has to happen in what order? And then how you orient new trainees or new people and teams into your lab? And then how do you tweak and adjust and improve on those processes? Well, the way you tweak and improve is you're constantly introspective and you're constantly trying to learn. And, and I, I even, you know, I've had my lab now coming up on almost 20 years this fall. And I still ask people as they're leaving, okay, so what did you think of your experience here? What, what needed to be, what do you wish would have been different um, or that could have been improved and so forth? And, um, you know, more recently for grad students, they've been implementing these IDPs and individual development plans. And those have been incredibly insightful for getting continuous feedback. So that's kind of in the real time. You know, we're thinking about things kind of in real time, um, how to improve and so forth. But how, how to get started, um, at the beginning, I thought it was important really to delineate or identify what, what our products were. So we've already talked about that, right? You've got to raise money. you got to get science out the door. But you also have to realize that your personnel are, uh, are, are both there to help you get the product generated, but also they themselves are products. And so when I started creating the vision, I wanted to figure out how to try to build the best team. Because at the end of the day, you can't produce a product, a science product in this case, or even personnel product, if you don't have a good team. And it was important to sort of establish, you know, what did I want that team to look like? How should it be structured? Um, and how, how do we, do we have mutual, or what are our mutual expectations? You know, what do I expect of them? What do they expect of me? And by the way, we all have, um, and we all ha are, have to be held accountable um, by the other. Um, no, no, no. I, I don't view that I'm um, here uh, running my laboratory and everybody works for me. I actually look at it quite the opposite, where I work for them, and so I have a sense of responsibility to make sure that they have everything that they need, that there's <laughs> that they can pay their stipends, that they have all the resources and environment in order to be able to flourish. And so, making that understandable by everybody that we're all in it together. Um, I think was one of the first critical steps, and that's something that I continuously go back and, and um, uh, revisit uh, periodically. And in fact, 
just to give you an example of how, how much I prioritize that, several years ago, um, I was asked to give talks for um, on, on the role of mentorship. And so I put together this big talk. This is for our Office of Policy Coordination. Before I would go give it, I actually sat every person down in the lab, in my lab, one at a time and presented it to them and said, okay, do you believe and do you agree that we actually live this or am I just talking? And they go, no, no, this is the way we actually work. You know, so that, because it was very important to me to make sure that I was really living up to this standard that I, um, that I was at least espousing. So thinking about that and, and what, what, what each person is bringing to the table and is really um, was, was kind of like one of the very first important steps in being able to communicate that so that all the trainees knew that we're all in it together, one for all, all for one or however it goes. Right. And, and, and so in there, you know, included things like what are their expectations of each other? What do we have to expect from each other? What do I bring to the table? What does productivity mean? These are all kinds of topics that I spent time detailing out. What does it mean to have a favor in the lab? Or how do you save a favor? Is it a bank account? Hmm. And what does that exactly mean? You know, do I just show up and you know, work three hours a day every day, um, five days a week, and then I'm out? Well, if that's the case, you know, what, can, what can someone expect to, to be granted or given when the time comes where they really need some help versus somebody who's really in it to try to win it and they're, they're putting everything into it? And you, know, you want to make sure that they've, they're going to be supported when the time comes too, if necessary. I spent time detailing out and thinking about what lab citizenship meant and how do I articulate that um, and making sure that everybody is on the same page with that. Part of that is, again, going back to trying to make sure that we've defined a clear joint vision that we're all on track to and, and committed to going after and pursuing. Um, so those are various kinds of things that you, you put in place, that I put into place right away and tr to try to build uh, the laboratory culture. And then, you know, then, then from there, once, once you kind of have culture established, you know, eventually, you know, there's certain traditions, of course, that, that our lab has adopted. You know, we like to take the lab out and go boating, you know, three or four times a season if we can, at least. Um, the lab lunches is a, is a very big cultural um, activity for our group. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of labs will have different activities like that. But then there becomes kind of a time where you then have to start thinking about, okay, next phase, well, how do we define what the projects are that everybody's going to pursue? I, I sort of gave you a synopsis of sort of three or four major research areas that we pursue, three major research areas. I can break some of them down <laughs> in a more subdivided form. But, you know, how do you identify and, and get someone to work on a particular project area? And spending time getting to know them, figuring out what their, where their scientific passions are is really critical so that you kind of properly match the project with the person. Because when, they, when they're pursuing something that they're really inspired to pursue, guess what? They're going to work harder and be more productive and have a lot more fun and be a much more highly engaged member of your community. Spend a lot of time thinking about things like that as well. Well, you have mentioned a word at least five times now, and that's time. And time has come in when you just mentioned matching up, taking the time to match the person with the product, taking the time to be introspective, taking the time upon entry with the individual development plan, upon exit, what were your experiences like? And I just wanted to, you know, leadership takes time. Well, first of all, you're, you're humble and authentic, which I think obviously translates to the trainees and to your colleagues. And I think that also comes out in your always seeking to improve and recognizing that I'm not the be-all, end-all. And as you said, all these hundreds of people who've come through my lab don't work for me. I'm always learning and improving and counting on the wisdom 
of the group. So I just really wanted to underline that concept of time that many times what I see, you know, my own failures and through the years in faculty development is a lot of us sometimes will think, oh, that takes so much time. It's just easier if I do it myself. Why do I, it just takes time to talk to people, to build that relationship, to have that conversation. It's just quicker to do it myself. So can you just say a couple words about, was this just another instinctive thing for you and your leadership style? Or did you purposely teach yourself to slow down and recognize that, yeah, some of the stuff will take time to think and plan, but the payoff is worth it? How Can you just speak on time, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, I think sort of probably both. I mean, some of it's intuitive, and then some of it, for sure, you you learn and realize over over time that you need to invest it wisely um, and productively. But you know, and you're right. I mean, time is a tremendous commodity, right? And, and it's the one commodity that we can never get back, right? It, it, it comes and then it goes and it's gone. Um, but I think the but but by, I think by investing that in your team helps everyone feel valued mm-hmm. and. Um, they, they, it makes everyone realize that they're really important to the operation, and it gets you much, much stronger buy-in amongst your group. Right. And so, to me, investing time in my in my lab and my personnel is really the, um, you know, it's the sine qua non or the second to none in terms of how you can what what you can put into your into your um, efforts in, in your group. You're, yeah, that, I love it. This is not in our enterprise in our field. We are not invested primarily in transactional relationships. They are transformational. These are long, relatively long-term relationships over time. So while it may be like, oh, I have no time to do these things, if you don't, if we don't invest that time wisely, we will um, reap some negative consequences sometimes on the back end of that. Well, I, and I would add one more point too, which is I, I'm inherently, you know, um, I guess kind of a, a people person. I, I like, I really enjoy interacting and talking with people. So for me, it's very rewarding in some ways more fulfilling to interact and talk with my trainees than it is to spend time working on a grant. Although we do both. We do both for sure. (laughs) Exactly. And to that point, I wanted you to clarify how many people are in your lab. So you said you've been doing this almost 20 years. Your lab has been around, but give us a sense of um, how you started, how many folks were there and how, what kind of a lab size are we talking about? And then if you could transition into, you mentioned lab citizenship. And if you could just briefly talk about that whole aspect of your lab culture, what is citizenship? Sure. Well, so the first part of the question, so my lab tends to run around 10 people, you know, that, that'll be plus or minus two at a time. You know, it's going to be between eight and 12. Numbers always fluctuate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, so to date, uh, I will have I've, we'll have had seventy eight people come through the lab um, at this point. Wow! Um, it includes everyone from high schoolers to undergrads to graduate students, postdocs, and even visiting scientists, which actually aren't counted in seventy eight. Um, so that gives you an idea of the, of the number of people that have come through over the years. And in terms of citizenship, you know, it's kind of realizing that we're all part of a community, and that everyone is working on their own projects, but everything that they do also is necessary and important and essential for everyone else's success. For example, we everyone has to take responsibility for ordering things. If they're going to, if they're going to run out of material, if we re- use up something, they got to go ahead and replace it so that it's there for the next person who needs it. You know, that's a very simplistic um, example, but, but you'd be surprised, you know, a lot of times it's the little things, it's the little gestures that, that make such a huge difference in the long run because they can build up if they get overlooked. But then also citizenship means 
coming to lab meetings fully engaged, not just in your own science, but in thinking about everyone else's science. So we, I'm a big believer in team thinking and that um, it's not just a matter of what, it's not just my ideas, or the, certainly I guarantee you it's not just my ideas, but it's really the collective wisdom and thought that the whole group will put together. So our lab meetings are, you know, go on for a couple hours and they're very dynamic and everyone's engaged and challenging each other. And I love it when I have um, students challenge me, students challenging each other, you know, challenging post, you know, everybody is, is kind of on e even footing. And we all have slightly different levels of experience and we want people to bring that and feel free and open to come and share their experience for sure. But it's really awesome when you have somebody who's brand new and new to the game saying, hey, you know, what about this? And you go, you know, I hadn't thought about that. That's a fabulous idea. I love it. <laughs> or ultimately, it might be, that's a great idea. But, you know, my experience already says that that maybe that, that won't work because of X, Y, and Z, which you wouldn't have had the opportunity to know about yet because you're, you're, you're just you're new to this. And so yeah, that can go both directions. But really having an environment where everybody can speak up is, and, and feel free and safe to do so. So having safe zones, in other words for being able to share your ideas very openly is, is um, a critical piece, I think. Yeah, well, that, that's perfect. And I, it was just as you were talking, you were getting me thinking about, okay, the inevitable situation. I'm sure there's someone out there right now listening to this podcast going, well, this sounds great. He set up this Shangri-La, good for Dr. Doug Robinson, but boy, I have some prickly pears in my lab, or I've had some challenges, you know, with COVID and time management and people are on edge and there's understandably a lot of anxiety. And so how do you handle difficult situations? And you started off kind of getting me there when you said free, you know, free and safe zones. So you clearly, I think it starts with, now I'm kind of segueing, just want to get your, your wisdom on um, difficult conversations or how do you mediate conflict. But it starts, I think, with what you have laid out, and that is creating a culture that has clear expectations, uh, norms for behavior, shared understandings of how we treat each other, the citizenship concept. Can you think of maybe one or two pointers on when there is conflict, how you um, have negotiated and handled that? Yeah, so going back to the free open space concept, it's really critical that you that everybody gets hurt. So if the, so the, if the conflict is with me, we're going to sit down and have a conversation about it. Um, if the conflict is between two people in the lab, and fortunately, we've almost never had that happen, but it's not never. <laughs> um, and so one, one of the things that um, we that I have done in the very rare instances where that's happened is we'll have the conversation right away. I bring everybody in on it. I mean, all the, at, least the two, at least the parties that are involved in the conflict. Um, and actually having it in, in a semi-public space is really critical. So we have a hallway that has you know, dry erase boards on one side, bulletin boards on the other. And sometimes for critical conversations like that, I'll have it out in the hallway, hmm. never behind a closed door. That seems counterintuitive, yeah. I know. Yeah, why is that? Tell, tell us about it. I'm, I'm, I'm dying of curiosity. Well, so it turns out people tend to be operated at a higher level if they think they're in the public. And so by being in a semi-public space, not saying it's not private enough, you know, not, not necessarily anybody's listening in per se, but they could walk around the corner, right? So that by itself tends to induce people to elevate to a higher, put themselves on a higher rung of, of behavior and, mm. and attitude. Whereas if you do it behind public, behind a closed door, all of a sudden there's not that sense of accountability 
and people can. Fortunately, I've, this part I have 100% avoided because I have the hard conversations in the semi-public space. But you know, they can kind of digress a little bit. And so by um, by doing that, I find that that actually helps everybody kind of elevate their game a bit. Hmm. And you then become much more, okay, how are we going to find a solution so that we can get through this conflict rather than just espousing the emotional side of it? Wow. And that's finish the role of emotions. I understand those are very, very real, and, and I'm not dismissing that, but you do at times in a professional space need to make sure you're elevating, that everyone is elevating their game and in, in, in a productive sort of way. So that's one thing. And then I think addressing early, but then also having out, uh, helps a lot if you address things early or you know, as fast as you can, as fast as you become aware of them. Um, and then the last thing I think is having clear guidances for as many things as possible ahead of time. So authorship, for example, I think was one of the topic areas that you had mentioned was of concern or in question, you know, by having written down a policy on authorship or on lab citizenship or on, you know, what it means to present um, your work publicly or what it means to think about how you're going to organize your research. Having those things sort of detailed out ahead of time, at least in broad strokes, can also really help you um, avoid certain conflicts because hey we're, we all know what we all knew what was you know knew what was going on here how this is going to work going into it ahead of time yeah. you're less likely to get surprises down the road genius i am just still loving this concept of public hallway conversations where there's a little more decorum than um yeah getting ugly behind in the privacy of almost i'm thinking of these trolling people on social media who have that little bit of um, anonymity in, in a closed door versus, oh, yeah, let's, um, we're putting on our, our formal clothes, we're out in the hallway. So that is just a really genius way. Plus, you're standing up, too. So there's also a different, I'm, I'm just thinking of this psychologically, there's a different um, tone to that. So I just think that's amazing. I love that, Doug. Absolutely. Yeah, and and, and so so, um, just want to summarize that. Um, Think about in conflict or difficult conversations, employing a public space, which um, kind of enforces or reassures us that we are in public view, so we have to be on our best behavior. We address things as soon as possible. Don't let them fester. And then you may preempt some problem by having clear guidance with expectations and rules and roles and ways of being that are revised and revisited. So there's no, there no, should be no big surprises. So this has been great. I'm going to leave a departing words to you, but folks, you've been um, learning about SOPs and vision. And it's what I love about uh, Dr. Doug Robinson's talk is that it's not only, it's again, one of these things that's reproducible, translatable in any arena. This could be in your home, creating a vision for our family and standard operating procedures in our in our kitchen or between roommates. It just makes a lot of sense. And um, but my grandpa used to always say, "Common sense ain't so common." So it's I I love how you've articulated this and and it works so well for you. Again, folks, this is Doug Robinson. Doug, I'm going to leave the departing words to you if you have any final thoughts or um, words of wisdom for the faculty factory community. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, first off, it's really a great privilege to have be able to work in an environment where you can have a team um, that you're working on your science together with. Um, but also, I, we all have kind of a mantra in the lab that, there's, that it's the lab family. And I think when you sort of build that, um, 
that that in that uh, culture, um, it becomes really rewarding, and they do become like a second family. And and when everyone sort of grows to the point where they understand that everyone's there for in help to to help and in service of each other, and that everyone's got each other's backs, it makes for a really rewarding um, environment, even when things are challenging. Mm. I wish everybody all the best in in, uh, in their lab groups and wow. in the environment that they're developing. Well, geez, folks, don't you want to join Doug Robinson's lab? I know I want to become a cell biologist, geneticist, biophysicist, just to be able to work in a lab and environment like this. What a great way of putting it. We're all on this journey together. Thanks for joining us on the Faculty Factory. Till the next time, folks, see you later. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.